This morning I'll read Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. 23 through 27. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man... We are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so very much for your word. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you'd come and help us to understand it. Be merciful to us and be patient with us as we, as we learn. And as it has already been prayed, O oh Lord, conform us into the image of your Son. Amen. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. You should never let your children ask you the question, why? With regard to a prohibition or a command. In other words, go do this. Children, your answer is not to be, why? Or if your parents say, don't do that, your answer is not to be, why? As parents, we should not let our children ask this question because in these cases, when a children asks or when a child asks why to their parent, when their parent has given them a command or given them a prohibition, they are saying, in effect, you are answerable to me. And you need to explain yourself to me. You owe me an explanation for this command or this prohibition. What that does is that turns parental authority on its head. It makes the parents answerable to the children. As I've tried to tell my children, and this takes a while for them to understand. We have to get that. But I try to tell my children that they can ask, may we discuss this? And then you have the, the option to say yes or no. There are a lot of situations like that where the rank of superior and subordinate are in place and questions and answers show that ranking. They show who is the superior and who is the subordinate. For example, I could ask a couple of questions and in your mind you can immediately begin to imagine the superior in the scenario and the subordinate. For example, here's a question. Do you know why I pulled you over? 
Do you know how late you are? Or for the younger ones, why is your room not clean yet? Or should I say, why is your room not yet cleaned? In those questions, as I ask them, you can hear and you can tell, and if you've been in these situations, you know that whether or not an answer is given is either a a sign of defiance or insubordination. If they don't answer, if they do answer politely and simply, that shows they understand the subordination. Do you know why I pulled you over? No, sir, officer, I do not. Or, yes, sir, officer, I do. Do you know how late you are? Yes, and I apologize. It won't happen again. Why is your room not yet cleaned? I don't know. I'm sorry. I'll get to it. You see, if, if there was if an, an, an obstinate answer, do you know why I pulled you over? No, and I don't care. That's not going to go well for you, and so on and so forth. Questions very often assume authority. And answers very often imply submission to that authority. Now in our text, we have an example of a question and an answer scenario. And and in this, this scenario, those grades or those levels of superior and subordinate are confused and reversed. Christ, the superior, is being questioned by his subordinates who believe that he is accountable to them, that he has to answer them. And so we'll see how this plays out. Before we get into it, let's remember where we are. We're walking through Passion Week on day one. Jesus entered into the city. He looked around the city of Jerusalem and he left. On day two, he walks back in, cleanses the temple, healed the blind and the lame. And then he left, and now uh, day three, we read the lesson from the fig tree. The lesson, verses 20 through 22, took place on the morning of day three, and now we're moving throughout the day of day three. And we have another run-in or another confrontation with these religious leaders. Now, all the way back in chapter 12, verse 14, it was at that point that we saw the Pharisees were seeking to destroy him because he had challenged their false teachings concerning the Sabbath. In chapter 16, verse 1, they came to him again to test him, demanding that he give signs to prove himself. In chapter 19, verse 3, again, the Pharisees came and tested him. Asking questions about the law of Moses every time they're trying to catch him in a trap. And so we know that the attitude toward the Lord from the religious elite of Israel is not a good one. It's not positive. We know that they want him dead. We also know that he knows that they want him dead. And he knows that they're going to play a crucial part in his death. He will be delivered over to the hands of men and they will kill him. He knows all of this. They've already voiced their disapproval of the children who are singing his praises. We saw that in verse 15. And now they're coming back in for the attack using their traditional method of questioning, of interrogation, of cross-examination. They think as teachers themselves, as learned men, that they can catch him in a word trick. So let's open up these verses, beginning in verse 23. We see the goading interpretation. 
To, to goad someone physically would be to poke or to prod, to, to agitate them. To do it metaphorically is to, to aggravate someone to a, a specific point. And in this, in this verse specifically, we see men who have earthly prestige asking Christ a twofold question concerning his jurisdiction in an attempt to provoke Outrage, either to provoke him or to provoke outrage at him from the people. We read here, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. Now I could just read that and you can, you can see there's already a sense of disrespect. They just walk up to him while he's teaching. But he's entered into, his, into the temple, his house. He's already displayed, I'm prophet, I'm priest, I'm king. This is my house, my father's house. He's already made it clear. He's taking over. And we see that the chief priests and the elders have come up to him. That is the religious leaders and temple workers. Now Mark tells us that there were also scribes with them. So we have chief priests, elders, scribes. The full gamut here of leading men who would represent the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the religious and civil court of Israel. Remember, Israel is a theocracy. And so their civil leaders have religious power and their religious leaders have civil power. It's all put together. It's not separated. And so we have this representation from the Sanhedrin, the court they have come up to him as he was teaching. He's imparting information. He's giving instruction. Now Luke tells us that he was also preaching the gospel. Proclaiming the good news. No doubt synonymous with other phrases like the gospel of the kingdom. Or the, the summary of his whole message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what he's doing. He's preaching and teaching. And so picture this scene. Uh, at least a representative group of the leading civil and religious leaders of the nation of Israel have walked up to him while he's walking around his temple teaching and instructing and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So they came up to him and said, By what authority... Are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Notice two parts of this question. And, and, and think of some of the implications of what they're asking. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now we know that he's come into the city. He had been receiving praise from the people and from the children. He's cleansed the temp temple. Flipped over tables of the money changers. Chased people out. He's healed the blind and the lame. Now he's teaching and instructing the people. He's preaching the gospel of a heavenly kingdom that's coming. And they want to know, on what authority are you doing all this? And where did you get that authority? What, where, who gave you authorization to come in here and do these things? They assume, and you can sort of, again, picture their arrogance. They assume nobody would come into our turf and just take it upon himself, the, the prerogative to begin to act like this. He's gotten authority. Someone sent him in here. 
Now, I want to give you a little clue that kind of helps us understand their actions here from John's Gospel. In John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Jesus has this encounter with Nicodemus. And we read, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, that's a term of submission. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus, Pharisee, ruler of the Jews, was probably a member of the Sanhedrin himself. And he says, we, that is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, we know that you are a teacher come from God. They knew it. They just don't want to admit it. We see that in, in chapter 12, the whole the story of the unpardonable sin. They, was, they were watching what was happening. They could not deny it. The only thing they could do was say it was from Satan's power rather than God's power. And even his own return to them proved to them that it wasn't from Satan's power. They know where he's coming from. So the scene is, or the topic of this scene is authority. And these men are challenging the basis for his actions in an attempt to charge him with blasphemy and have him arrested. All he has to do is say it out loud. I did all of this. I've, I've disrupted all of your, the way you do things. I've done it on the authority of the same God you say you're doing what you're doing uh, from or by. And that would, of course... Arouse the people, arouse the court, and they could have him arrested. They want to challenge him here, even though they already know he's from God. They can't deny it. And so there we see this, this goading interrogation. They're trying to provoke him with their questions. Secondly, verse 24 through 25a, we see the Lord's discerning retaliation. They've come, they've asked this question, they're trying to catch him in a word trap, but our omniscient king is not clueless or ignorant to what they're doing. He knows exactly what they're doing. He knows full well what they're trying to accomplish. And I think he's just trying to hold off until Friday or Thursday evening. He, he answers their question with another question that turns the whole trap back on them. We read over and over in Scripture, the, the foolish set a snare and they are caught in it. Or they dig a hole, a pit, and they fall back into it. That's exactly what's happening. They thought that they could catch the Lord in a trap. He turns it back on their heads. Jesus answered them, verse 24, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now this is a very common form of rabbinic teaching. And, I, and some of us are learning to do this in conversations we have with lost folks, is when they ask a question, respond with a question. This helps the questioner learn their way to the answer without you just telling them the answer. I could, with cases math, I could give him a calculator. Math done, right? We All of us adults know that. Math done, calculator. But I don't want him to just know the answer. I want him to know the way to the answer. That's what's happening here. When you ask questions, 
You, you let someone lead themselves to the answer. And so that's what he's, he's doing. So here's the question he asks. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? The baptism of John, that phrase is a synecdoche for the whole of John's ministry. A small phrase describing one thing that actually represents the full full scope of all that John did. John's preaching of the gospel, John's calling and commanding men to repentance, his baptizing of those who were turning from sin, and especially John's announcement, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Messiah. All of that is assumed under the baptism of John, his ministry. Where did it come from? From heaven or from man? That is, from God or from man? Where did John get his authority? Jesus makes it simple. A or B. Gives a multiple choice. What is the source? What is the origin of all that John did? Did it originate with God or did it originate with man? Now again, the Lord knows what He's doing. He has immediately become the teacher of this group. Because they questioned him. He flips it back on their heads. Now he's the teacher. They came as authorities with man as their source of authority. He turns it to show he's not answerable to them. They are answerable to him. If they will answer his question, he'll respond. But he does not have to. And secondly, he has just given them the answer to their question. If you asked me, Paul, do you enjoy Japanese food? I might say, does a cat have a climbing gear? You would know what I was saying. I would be indirectly and yet very directly answering your question. You ever seen a cat climb? Of course I like Japanese food. That's what's happening. The the question to his or the answer to his question is from heaven, from God. That's also the answer to their question. Where did, where did you get this authority? From God. He's answered them. But they have to say it first. So we see this discerning retaliation. Number three. The end of verse 25, end of verse 26. We see a very revealing deliberation. These men have to now mull over their answer. And as we get insight into their conversation, their... their um, Dialogue, we get to see just how wicked, how malicious they really are. Verse 25b, and they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Now they know what he's doing, they know they're caught. And they also know the outcome of A or B. And that's what they're worried about is the outcome to their answers. But they do not care about the truth. These men are not trying to give a truthful answer. They're trying to preserve themselves before the people first. And secondly, continue in carrying out their mission to destroy him. That's all they want. Now, another clue that helps us understand what's happening here from, again, John's Gospel, chapter 1. Verse 19, and this is the testimony of John, that is John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites 
from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Now, think about those options that they gave him. When he said he wasn't the Messiah, the first, the, the second option they come up with is Elijah. And we know Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come, which is fulfilled in John the Baptist. The Jews more than likely believed that Elijah himself would actually physically come since he never died. Is he literally Elijah? No, he's not Elijah. Are you the prophet? More than likely a reference to Deuteronomy 18. One shall arise from among you, from among your brothers, and be a prophet like me. In other words, they don't say, uh, they, don't, they don't throw out little answers. Are you just some guy? Are you just some teacher? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? They know or knew there was something great about John the Baptist. Yeah. They knew... Jesus was a teacher come from God. They knew John the Baptist was at least something special. Remember, Jesus asked, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? He was proving to them, you went all the way out there to hear him preach. You know something special. It was something special about this man. They know the answer, not only to the Lord's question, they know the answer to their own question. They don't care about answers. They want to catch him. So what does this deliberation reveal? These men do not care about truth. Even when their own consciences testify to the truth. They want him dead. They want their authority over the people back. This deliberation reveals obstinate, truth-defying self-preservation at all costs. They think as long as we don't say it out loud, we're fine. And they'll go to any length to preserve their autonomy, to answer to no one, to keep their authority over the people. Fourth heading, verse 27. Here we see the concluding proclamation. Our Lord declares here, in no uncertain terms, I am my own authority. I will be judged by no man. Notice, so they answer Jesus, we do not know. Which is a lie, pure and simple. And so he said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He will make them say it out loud or it will not be said. Now the sense of his statement is this. You know who I come from. You know where I come from. And you know that I don't answer to you. And so he refuses to be held accountable to these men. Their own self-preserving hypocrisy conceals the very answer they came to get. Again, they know the answer, but they cannot admit the answer out loud without proving themselves to be disobedient rebels, rebels because they did not respond to John's calls for repentance. They've not listened to Jesus preaching for repentance. And so they can't answer. The problem with that line of thinking is that the lawgiver and the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not limited to their vocalized beliefs. He knows their hearts. And so set within this 
the original meaning of what's happening here within the Gospel of Matthew, we also learn a timeless truth that must be proclaimed in our own day. First, the Lord Jesus Christ answers to no one. He doesn't have to defend himself. He doesn't have to prove himself to anyone else or to us. We don't pray prayers like, well, well, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do that. You can just show yourself here. He doesn't have to show himself. He rules over all things with authority that has been given to him by his Father. And this is a theme that Matthew actually emphasizes a lot. In Matthew 7, 28 and 29, he finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So in his, in his preaching, and his teaching, he had authority. There was something about what he said that didn't leave room for, for debate. He said it and people said, he at least believes what he's saying. He spoke with authority. He didn't quote and quote and quote and quote. He just said it. You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say. And that's it. That settles it. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, an outside testimony, the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. What the centurion is is testifying to is, Lord, you have authority over sickness. It's like military power. When you say, be gone, the sickness says, yes, sir, and goes. Even the centurion knew that. In chapter 8, verse 27, the Disciples marveled when he calmed the storm, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? They submit to his authority. They do what he says. In chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Even these crowds recognized this man's got authority. Authority to forgive sins. Authority to cast out paralysis. In Matthew chapter 10 verse 1, he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. And to heal every disease and every affliction, not only did he have authority, but he dispensed authority and gave it to others to do what he himself had done. And then, of course, in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority that is to be had, he owns it. If anybody else has any authority, it is a derived authority from Christ. In Hebrews 1.8 we read, But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The throne throughout Scripture is a symbol of authority and power and kingship. And His throne is established forever. In other words, He has eternal 
everlasting authority. And so he does not answer to you, you answer to him. He does not owe you an explanation, nor should you feel compelled to ask for one. On judgment day, you will not get ten minutes for a rebuttal session. All logic, all debate tactics will be worthless. Your mouth will be stopped. He will make his declaration. You will receive it willingly. And all of creation will join in his praise, either to your condemnation or to the praise of his glorious grace in saving such a wretch. But there will be no challenges. There will be no objections. And there will be no complaints. You just take it. Now why is that? Because Jesus Christ is king. He rules now. He rules forever. And He rules absolutely. And that's the essence of our gospel proclamation. When we explain that Christ was born of a virgin, was suffered under the wrath of God for sins, was raised on the third day, and now ascended to the throne, all of that is His, his, his steps to establishing His kingdom. You see, His steps to coming to power over all things. And so that's why when we get to the end, we can say... And therefore he is king, therefore you should submit. That's the gospel. It comes to the authority of Christ. The second thing that we we learn from this passage is that because all of that is true, because he is king and has all authority, even in supposed ignorance or quietness, or lack of verbal affirmation. The unspoken consciences of men testify to their culpability in the presence of Christ, who is the supreme authority and judge. You don't have to testify to a truth to be held accountable for that truth. And I think a lot of times we're under that impression, like there will be a a, a truth, a, a known or... A held belief and we think well as long as I don't say that I believe that out loud I'm not really held accountable to do it or better yet what if I just say I don't believe it I don't have to be held accountable to it now maybe men won't men could say well he says he doesn't even believe that truth so what am I so what am I supposed to say now your conscience bears witness against you. Your conscience tells you and tells God you know better. And that doesn't, so it doesn't matter what we say out loud, what we affirm, what we say we believe or disbelieve. Our consciences testify to our culpability before Christ. These men knew full well based on eyewitness testimony and their own hearts. This was the Christ He had authority and power from on high, and they were answerable to Him, and yet they chose not to submit. Or Paul would say they suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. And you are no different. Your very thought life testifies to whether or not you have submitted to Christ as King. Think about it. Honestly, within your your own mind... Think about what you know to be true. The Bible says there is none who is righteous. There are none who are good. That the thoughts and intentions of your heart are only evil 
continually. And when I say that, you might want to try to deny that. Surely not only evil continually, but you know yourself. Your familiarity with yourself and your sin and your thoughts and your inclination to wickedness. Your avoidance of God's express commands, even if nobody else knows it, proves to you your depravity. The Bible says you're a debtor to God because you've sinned against Him. There's no good thing that you can do to even begin to pay Him back. Now you might want to disprove that. So well, I can be a jerk on Saturday night and come to church on Sunday morning and show I can, all, I can start paying this stuff back. But think about it again. You wake up daily. Most of us wake up daily with aches and pains and we have to take medicine and exercise just to carry on a normal routine. That shows you that you're already on a downhill slide to death. You are finite. Every day when you wake up, your body says, you're finite. You're finite. You're finite. You're not going to live forever. How then could you begin to pay back a debt owed to an infinite God? Right. You can't. Your body tells you that. The Bible says that you have to be changed from the inside. That a new nature has to be created in order to live according to righteousness. Now you might want to disagree and say, well, I've seen some people do some, some good things, some very righteous things. Just think about your own inability to consistently, for any notable length of time, follow the Lord's commands to a T. Just think about it. You shall not bear false witness. When was the last time you let, you didn't say anything, you just let somebody believe something about you that wasn't fully true because you know if I correct them, that's going to bring me down a notch in their eyes? You lied to them. You stared them in the face and you lied to them without saying a word. That's inward testimony to your impotence in affecting any lasting change in your own sinful nature. You can't do it. The Bible says that having begun in the Spirit through faith, that we have to now continue to live out the Christian life through faith by the power of the Spirit. And you might think, well, I can handle it. I can go this on my own without prayer and without dependence upon God, without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Now, which of you would be ready to come up here right now and elaborate on some of the points I made in the sermon just two weeks ago? You can't do it. That just told your mind and your heart, you need a paraclete. You need a comforter. You need someone to come alongside you within your own heart and make the truth of God and the knowledge of God and the wisdom God gives effectual in your heart. Because you can't hold on to it by yourself. The point is your conscience bears witness to all of these things. You don't have to be vocal. You don't have to come up to the pulpit and say, yes, that's me. And I don't have to say, raise your hand if that's you. Every one of you in your heart know it's true. And Christ does not need to introduce new material into the equation in order to pronounce judgment upon you. All He has to do is let your own conscience speak. And it damns you. We don't have to admit any outside evidence. 
We don't have to call any special witnesses. And on that day when you stand before God, before Christ as judge, there will be no help. Paul speaking of the Gentiles who never even had the opportunity to hear the commandments of God. He says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Just like these Pharisees and these elders and chief priests and scribes, these men who had challenged the Lord, your conscience bears witness against you. The fact that you sometimes live contrary to what your conscience is telling you to do accuses you before Christ. You don't have to say anything. Your silence is evidence that you know the truth. And on that day, that's all there will be is silence. The good news is that Jesus Christ has died. And His blood, the author to the Hebrews tells us, His blood purifies our consciences from dead works. And He now lives. Because you're sinful, He became sin. Because you are unable, He took the role of sin-bearer upon Himself. Because your nature is corrupt, He united Himself to it in the flesh. And in the flesh, He died. The wages of sin is death, and so He died. The Lord's Supper, the bread and the fruit of the vine... Representing His broken body and His blood. This is, as you hold it, it is, is, it is outside evidence brought into your trial. As you eat and you drink, you are participating in the body and the blood of Christ that clears your name. And we are reminded that the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth belongs the one whose throne is established forever and ever, that one sealed a covenant with you in His blood. Is your conscience guilty? You're reminded. The covenant's sealed. I can't break the covenant, but I can run to Him for forgiveness. So let's examine our hearts, think on these things for just a minute, and then we'll come to the Lord's table.